Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Fears of a trade war between the U.S. and China have subsided a bit. Here with us is Mike McDonough, chief economist for financial products at Bloomberg. Uh, Mike, I want to start with the news that the Trump administration is urging China to lower tariffs on cars and open its markets to U.S. financial services. This comes as part of talks to resolve uh, the rise in trade tensions. What do you make of this? I mean, how much credence can we put in uh, some of these measures coming to pass? Uh, you know, I think that there there is a willingness from China to um, implement some of these changes. But I think the timeline that maybe President Trump has in mind and the timeline that China may have in line may be where you have a difference. But that doesn't mean there can't be some sort of compromise in some of these areas. You know, it, it's an interesting trade in China is an interesting topic because it's one area where a lot of leaders around the world may actually agree with President Trump. Right. Uh, and when you, you look at this situation, the problem is it looks like President Trump really wants some sort of short-term gain that he could show, look, I did this. A victory. Uh, a victory, sort of a very short-term victory, so uh, which th- this is kind of the damaging aspect of it, right? Nobody's going to win from a trade war. The, espe- uh, the U.S. will get hit especially hard if there were a trade war. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're missing this opportunity to have a sort of multilateral approach where we join together with a lot of the other countries that China's trading with and, and go through the WTO or more traditional method, um, uh, channels. Uh, and it, it's... That, that that's somewhat unfortunate, but I do think there could be some short-term compromise on on certain things. So, Mike, I'm looking at equity markets today. Uh, Dow Jones off its earlier highs, but still up uh, about one and a half percent. And you could see a uh, green across the screen throughout the U.S. indices. Um, people could attribute various reasons for this, but one of them could be that these uh, that the potential for a trade war has uh, gone down, right? That, that there has been a softening in the discussion around China and the U.S. Are markets being too complacent in taking the uh, words from Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and the Chinese officials for saying that they're making some progress here? You know, I don't think so. I think when you look at really, since President Trump was elected, there's a lot of reasons that markets have been going up. But the two big macro ones, one is the expectation that the Fed's going to be very gradual in normalization. And the second important input was that there wasn't going to be any major disruption to, to international trade. I think many times now we've seen rhetoric get really hot uh, on a bunch of topics out of out of Washington, One, this now being trade. Uh, and then the action, though, the follow through has been uh, a fraction of what the original rhetoric indicated it might be. So I think we could be seeing another case of that. So I think the market taking this, uh, this new input into consideration. It, it might say that it overreacted. The market may have overreacted a bit last week uh, and is now kind of normalizing to the reality of the situation. Well, so then what do you have to see before uh, you would bet on the idea of a trade war heating up materially more than uh, what we've seen in the past? Well, you would, you would need to see action, not just words, right? You would need to see actual tariffs being implemented on a wide swath of goods, not, you know, not very targeted, relatively small 
uh, tariffs that don't have that much of an impact on the U.S. or Chinese economy, like steel or aluminum tariffs, don't have a major. They're not. They're, they're bad. They're not, I don't think they're a good thing to have, have occur. But uh, they're not going to have a major impact alone on either of the U.S. or the or the Chinese economy. So, um, you know, just sort of shifting a little bit from China to uh, Canada and Europe, the steel and aluminum tariffs that we talked about so extensively weeks ago. Uh, can we now write them off as largely non-existent since everybody's gotten an exception? Well, this is another an example. This is another example of what I was talking about, where the <laughs> rhetoric is really high, really hot, uh, and then when you actually see the the implementation, it's a fraction of what was originally indicated would happen. So, I mean, I wouldn't write anything off yet. We don't know what's going to happen. You're you're one tweet away from the markets being very concerned again. Well, but this is my point. Are we? Or are markets going to learn to ignore those tweets as all bark and no bite? Uh, it hasn't happened so much yet. I think eventually the market could get desensitized to tweets. I guess it matters what the tweet says. Uh, it matters, is it a new target? Is it a new idea? Um, is there indications of a follow through? Does, you know, if, if there is a tweet that targets another country, does that country then respond with their own not tweet necessarily, but their own communication that indicates that this could could then escalate. So I think there's a lot of factors you need to look at. Uh, maybe a tweet in and of itself about steel or aluminum tariffs or um, some of these Chinese tariffs might not have the same impact it had last week. But, um, it, you know, you still got to be on the lookout for it and see what happens in the aftermath of that tweet. Mike McDonough, thank you so much for being with us. Mike McDonough, Chief Economist for Financial Products at Bloomberg. We've talked a lot about Aetna recently uh, in light of CVS's bid to buy Aetna, but there's another side of Aetna, the Aetna Foundation, that has been studying what makes a community healthy, uh, what impact the opioid epidemic has had on the nation, and going forward, what can make the nation in a better position health-wise. Dr. Garth Graham joins me now. He's president of the Aetna Foundation, which is based in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, The Aetna Foundation just released its inaugural healthiest communities rankings. Mm-hmm. So who's healthy? Who's healthiest in this in this country? Well, so, you know, based on this ranking, we saw a lot of communities in Virginia and Colorado that trended to the top of the list. What's important to understand here with what we're publishing is that health, you know, we only spend a couple of hours a year in the doctor's office at the most. Health is defined by everything else. All the stuff that's happening out in the community, you know, where you can get fresh fruits and vegetables, bikeability, walkability, safe housing, making sure that um, you know, you can do all the things, the environment, the air we breathe. So what we try to really define with this ranking is a common concept um, that your <clears throat> zip code defines your health more than your genetic code. Um, and really by looking at all of those factors within a zip code that really influences how long people live. So I'm just wondering, when a community is determined to be healthy, does that mean that they can enjoy lower insurance premiums mm. in uh, in tandem with nicer lives? And conversely, if you live in an unhealthy community, are premiums higher? Well, you know, I'm not sure there's a one-to-one connection with premium. I think there is, if you're living in a community and that community lacks healthcare access and you are healthier, unhealthier because of that community, you're going to spend a lot more on healthcare. And so remember, there's a difference between health and healthcare. Health is when we're living a healthy life, able to do all the things we want to do. 
Healthcare is when you're sick and you got to go to the doctor's office and get treated. What we want to emphasize is how do you make people healthier in general? And how do you make sure that they can enjoy their lives, enjoy their aspirations, enjoy their goals? And, you know, that's intrinsically linked to the strength of the community around them. So uh, perhaps uh, when you have to rely on the healthcare system, it's when you are sick, although a number of people are believing or sort of having faith in the idea that they will never get sick because Mm -hmm. there was a story on the Bloomberg today uh, looking at how a number of Americans are dumping insurance because the premiums are going up. Mm -hmm. Uh, How much have you noticed this trend and and can you connect that to the healthiness of a community? So I think in general, um, we tend to overestimate how healthy we are. Um, And I think truth be told, again, we have to understand what are the kinds of things that goes into making us healthy. I mean, if we think about the day that we spend, we spend the day interacting with family, with friends and going out into the environment. And those components of how we build that social and community infrastructure really defines what makes us healthy. And again, understanding just how much time, you know, I'm a a, a physician by training, by practice, and you know, all the vast majority of health occurs outside of the doctor's office, and a lot of that health is local. So, like politics, all health is local, and so understanding what are the components of local health um, that are making communities healthier. Dr. Graham, what's the responsibility of the healthcare community with respect to the opioid epidemic? Mm-hmm. Since a lot of people think uh, that it started with prescriptions of oxycodone and other uh, types of uh, hard pain-killing uh, medications. Yeah, so the, health, the, the, the opioid epidemic is multifactorial. We see challenges across the economic spectrum. There's no doubt, though, that communities that are hardest hit are those communities where folks have lobs, jobs and infrastructure and issues around mental health and addiction start to take more of a, um, a compounded tone. And so, you know, understanding just how we treat that entire community and also understanding that the line to recover for addiction is giving people hope and opportunity. And so understanding that when we build that community infrastructure that makes that community stronger, we then have people, if they survive a naloxone, an opioid overdose and they get naloxone or an opioid reversing treatment, they go back into a healthier community and healthier infrastructure. So again, all health is still defined as those components of local activity that make both a family and a community stronger. As a practicing doctor, what have you learned about uh, people who use opioids, Mm. perhaps even patients of your own, that uh, perhaps might challenge some of the conceptions that people have about the Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things that I learned is it really does cross all lines, all um, geographic lines, all socioeconomic lines, um, all different kinds of different communities that you would not have expected to be impacted. One of the most troubling things that many of us have seen in both clinical and public health, and you see reflected in the CDC data, is that uh, impact that is happening on the youngest and most vibrant folks within our community. And understanding that what we're doing is, uh, what's happening here is that it's not just you know um, uh, folks who are in their 20s and 30s but even uh, filtering down into younger folks within teenage years. And so the recent CDC data points to the fact that the the decrease in life expectancy nationally that we're seeing has a lot to do with the impact that opioids are having on our youngest and most vibrant. And that's why, you know, um, through efforts that we're doing at the Edna Foundation, tackling the opioid epidemic, investing in local communities, but also others across the board, um, we really have to understand it's about the future of our country. Is there any crossover between the Aetna Foundation and Aetna, the healthcare provider? <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, Aetna Foundation is a philanthropic arm of Aetna. So we invest, again, into 
local communities and we um, invest in, we have a Healthy Cities and Counties initiative where we work, we work with 50 cities and counties across the board to deal with local issues impacting those communities. So we, we are the arm that um, helps expand the reach um, of our organization into local communities. Do you share the data that you collect with Aetna, the healthcare company? Mm, no, so most of our funding um, are with partners and grantees. Um, so they may be state-based organizations um, or even local nonprofits, and their data is their data. We just help support them do work in the community. I mean, does Aetna sort of look to your work to determine how to sort of set pricing and to determine uh, how to sort of view American health? Mm, no, we're a separate entity and not a part of the business arm in terms of um, uh, that um, uh, intersection between pricing and economics. That being said, as part of the foundation, as is broad enterprise, I think we're all committed to this issue of building local healthy communities and trying to invest in communities go as local as we can and find those partners who can impact change. Dr. Graham, just real quick, uh, where are we in the opioid epidemic? So, you know, for the past couple of years, um, as a country, as a nation, we've seen our life expectancy decline, primarily driven by the impact of the opioid epidemic on the younger population. I think many folks have said that, you know, over the next couple of years, as this continues to um, have that impact, it'll no longer be a um, a blip, it'll be a trend. So I think right now we're seeing, we're in the midst of the epidemic. I think we are, as a country, as a community, um, I think fighting for the lives of our youngest and most vulnerable. And so I think the next couple of years, depending on how we can come together, whether it be um, government or public, uh, government and private sector, I think will define where we go. Dr. Garth Graham, president of the Aetna Foundation, which is based in Hartford, Connecticut. Thank you so much for being with us. The high yield bond market is often thought of as the canary in the coal mine for distress in financial markets. Right now, it is not signaling any distress. Joining me right now, Ken Monahan, co-director of high yield at Amundi Pioneer, overseeing more than $50 billion. Uh, you know, uh, Ken, I want to focus a little bit, not on high yields, but on investment grade, because there's a question as we see all of these mergers and acquisitions going on in investment grade uh, corporate America. How many of these deals will end up in the high yield bond market? Well, it, it, uh, at least it's something we're concerned about or thinking about going forward. If we look at the uh, M&A activity in the uh, bond market right now, there's about $250 billion of transactions to be financed this year. And that's off of a number last year that was about $175 billion. So you think about headline names. We've got the uh, Keurig acquisition of Dr. Pepper. We've got the Cigna acquisition of uh, Express Scripts. We've got the General Mills acquisition of Blue Buffalo. There's a lot of transactions going on. A lot of these companies, if you look at them post the acquisition, are sporting leverage ratios, which look much more like a high-yield company than an investment-grade company. And I think the rating agencies thus far have been giving uh, these companies a little bit of leeway to get their houses in order through synergies and asset sales post-acquisitions before they make any final pronouncements on ultimate rating action. Well, yeah, you can see that Fitch, for example, uh, has Aetna on a rating watch negative after CVS uh, agreed to acquire the company. I'm just wondering, as a high-yield debt investor, how do you play 
in debt that gets downgraded from investment grade to high yield after an acquisition? Do you buy? Do you sell? I mean, what's what's your move? Well, you know, we certainly look at it, you know, and there's a lot of investors uh, in the high yield space that would say, okay, well, it's now entered my index or my benchmark. I need to be invested in it. And we don't happen to look at it that way. We'll be much more selective. There are things that we will buy uh, that happen to be uh, now or what we call fallen angels, formerly investment grade companies that fall into the high yield space. And there's a lot we ignore. Uh, we just don't think that they're inappropriately valued. I guess another question is, you have a $1.3 trillion U.S. high-yield bond market. Let's say uh, some of the record volume of triple B uh, companies, corporate debt, some of it gets downgraded. All of a sudden, you could see this universe of high-yield debt expand dramatically with a limited number of investors. Could you see spreads? Could you see yields blow out in response in the high-yield bond market? Well, we certainly did when General Motors and Ford entered the high-yield index a number of years ago. Is there a matter of fact, a number of the uh, designers of benchmarks reacted as a result. They went from having uh, benchmarks that were we called unconstrained to constrained. So they limited the amount of uh, that any one issuer could represent in the index to 2% uh, because uh, Ford and General Motors, because they were such large issuers, actually overwhelmed the high yield marketplace. Now, I don't think any of the transactions we mentioned, like Keurig, Dr. Pepper, not that we're suggesting that's going to get into high yield necessarily, that any of these transactions themselves would overwhelm the marketplace or the indices to the degree that it did with Ford and General Motors. But it certainly would be, if, if, if a number of these companies were ultimately downgraded, it would be a significant shift in the market. Let's talk about the supply-demand dynamic in another way. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about foreign investors who are one of the major buyers of U.S. credit stepping away. I'm wondering, from your vantage point, how significantly is this the case? Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, Amundi Pioneer is a global firm, uh, and uh, we have global clients, and we certainly had seen a lot of inflows uh, from uh, non-U.S. investors into the corporate credit market, both investment grade and high yield. Um, so whether we're looking at Asian investors or European investors, we, we seem to have seen that slow somewhat this year. Um, whether that changes or not, it's unclear, but clearly the, the hedging costs, the cost of hedging back to one's native currency have increased uh, over the course of 2017 and into 2018. And we think that's at least one factor uh, that's impacting uh, investors, overseas investors' willingness to buy corporate credit in the United States. So the risks are clearly rising, whether it's the risk of downgrades from mergers and acquisitions, whether it's the foreign bid declining uh, for U.S. corporate credit. And yet a lot of high yield debt has gotten sold, including from Tesla and Uber, uh, companies that are burning through cash. What do you make of that? Well, historically, if you look at the high yield marketplace, it has financed technology companies. But most technology companies that have has, has financed have been companies that have been much further along in their business cycle, um, where there was, uh, let's say, a software company where there was a certainty or a consistency with cash flows. The problem with uh, Teslas or the Ubers of the world, these are companies that are still very much at the building portion of their business cycle, and therefore they've got large negative cash flows. Um, that makes them much more difficult to finance in the credit markets, and that's why historically those businesses have been financed with equity. And sometimes if they've gone to the debt markets, they've used convertible bonds rather yeah. than high-yield bonds. 
So have you been buying their loans? Um, <laughs> we generally don't like to comment on specific companies, but we've been much more cautious about the technology <laughs> sector. Why don't we very, do that? Very diplomatic. Is there any uh, any sector that you're particularly bullish on? Well, we've been more bullish on the housing market um, continue to be. We think that there is still some value there. Uh, we've been bullish on the steel industry, and we've been bull bullish on it prior to what's gone on with regards to uh, some of the, uh, the, the the trade barriers that were put up recently by the White House. Uh, and we think that th those are two sectors that will continue to benefit uh, given the current state of the economy. As you pointed out early in our conversation, um, the high-yield market, which is often thought of as the canary in the coal mine, hasn't been singing this time. Um, we don't think that the, that the the fundamentals are actually pretty strong still. So uh, what will you have to see to change that tune? You know, uh, you know, business cycles, as we know, generally don't end because they get they die of old age. They they die because uh, companies start doing f more foolish things. Yeah. So you worry about the M&A side, which we just talked about. Um, and then you worry about how aggressive that the central banks will be. And the Fed's obviously is, is beginning to not necessarily take away the, the punch bowl, but maybe they put a drain on the bottom of it and they're beginning to take some of the liquid out. Yeah. Um, if the ECB moves as well, maybe that becomes more more troublesome. But we don't think that happens this year. Fed is dimming the lights in the bar. Ken Monahan, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us. Co-director of High Yield at Amundi Pioneer, uh, which oversees more than $50 billion of assets from Durham, North Carolina. Definitely an interesting time, especially with the proportion of triple B rated debt in the investment grade market being the highest it's ever been, uh, raising the uh, issue of what happens if some of this gets downgraded. As part of the spending bill that was passed last week in Congress, uh, a particular type of fund, business development funds, were allowed to incur more leverage to boost returns. Here joining us now to talk about that and other things affecting the middle market space, David Dullum, president of Gladstone Investment Corporation based in McLean, Virginia. David, thank you so much for being here. First, can you lay out what the change was uh, that was made and it was sort of slipped in to the bill that was passed last week. Sure, Lisa. Uh, thank you for having me on. Um, basically, BDC's business development companies have been limited, if you will, uh, to a leverage ratio of one layer of debt to one layer of equity. Uh, it's been that way since BDCs were created. So what this bill basically allows is that we can now go from one-to-one -one leverage, if you will, to a two-to-one leverage. So for each uh, dollar of equity uh, that any fund has, theoretically, they can increase that by another one to two-to-one. There are, though, some uh, requirements, and, and as with most things, the details are important. And in this case, uh, each BDC will have to get shareholder approval uh, by at least 50% of shareholders to be able to increase from the one to one to two to one, and may, may be affected somewhat by other restrictions in their capital structure, such as any lines of credit or preferred stock issuances that they have, where there are some restrictions in there which will have to be worked through, if you will. But having said that, it definitely will be a positive, I believe, in that if two to one leverage is not huge leverage, certainly relative to other financial institutions, and it will give an 
an opportunity for a higher return on equity yeah. for those funds that are able to employ it. So just taking a step back, business development companies yeah. typically invest in smaller and mid-sized U.S. companies through debt and equity, uh, and they get some tax benefits as a result. Uh, and they are typically, they IPO, they have initial public offerings, and they raise mm-hmm. a certain amount of, of capital that they can then invest in these smaller companies, right? Correct. Okay. So I'm wondering, since you run a BDC, a business development company, yeah. Gladstone Investment Corporation, are you planning to uh, increase the leverage in response to this new uh, rule that was allowed? Yes, we, we certainly are looking into it um, to determine how we go about getting that done, including, as I mentioned, our uh, shareholder approval. Absolutely. I think it's a very positive thing. The industry has been working on this for a while, and, and it's good to see it happen. How much do you think that you could increase returns as a result of this? Well, you know, it's it's hard to tell, obviously. It depends how much leverage any one fund would, would access. Uh, but, you know, most of us have returns on equity, if you will, ROE, depending on how you count it, that are in the, say, anywhere in our case, we're up over 20% because we are a differentiated a business development company gain, meaning glass own investment, because we actually, when we buy a business, we are we are using both our own debt and our equity. So we are differentiated from most BDCs that are lenders. So my anticipation is with the ability to access at least another, say, half of or 70% of another layer of debt, uh, we'll be able to have a lower cost of capital. And therefore, I would expect our returns could be increased. I don't know, 10, 15, 20% perhaps, just because of incremental leverage. David, it's interesting, the timing of this, because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of money chasing yield right now, and there's a lot of money looking in the small and mid-cap space with an increasing number of private credit funds raised by a number of private equity firms and even hedge funds. And I'm wondering, are you concerned that valuations are getting too heady uh, and that the Mm -hmm. demand is so great that the uh, investment opportunities really just aren't there? Right. It's a great question. Um, I would say this. We've, it's not new necessarily. I would say the last number of years, we've certainly been in this environment where I would call it challenging uh, in terms of finding and investing in these new buyout opportunities. Um, th- as far as the traditional BDCs, the lending BDCs, I think clearly this this is going to help because it will have a tendency to lower the cost of capital for those BDCs. For firms like my own, Gladstone Investment, where we are a buyout-oriented BDC, uh, our challenge is really competing with, as you said, the other private equity firms that have a fair amount of capital. This is going to help us uh, because our cost of capital will also be a bit lower. So where perhaps we might have been challenged, let's say, in a buyout where, you know, seven or eight times EBITDA was a problem, we might be able to raise our valuations a little bit and therefore actually be a bit more competitive. But overall, I'd say it's challenging in finding good new opportunities. And indeed, it is a bit frothy, but it's been that way for the last couple of years. And I'm not sure I see it changing dramatically going forward in the next few years, as long as the economy continues as it is. So it doesn't concern you to uh, add a little more leverage at this point, because we still have some uh, some time left. Yeah, not really. And as I say, it'll help us in terms of, I think, being even more competitive and certainly a potential for greater return on equity, which, of course, benefits our public shareholders. 
David Dellum, thank you so much for joining me. David Dellum, president of Gladstone Investment Corporation. It trades in the NASDAQ as GAIN, G-A-I-N. Uh, it is based in McLean, Virginia. And uh, this particular shift in the leverage allowance for business development companies was tucked into the $1.3 trillion spending bill that was passed by U.S. Congress last week. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.